acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, change a little bit something that Wayne said, which is even those of you who are not members, I would encourage you, whether you're members or friends, if you attend church regularly here, to come this afternoon. Uh, Probably one of the most discouraging things for pastors is the low turnout at congregational meetings, speaking psychologically and emotionally. If you will permit me that for a moment. Because week by week, pastors and elders and deacons, your officers, carry the burden of assuring that the lights come on, that that it's warm, that the parking lot's paved, that the new building is built, that salaries are met, that the missionaries receive their salaries. All of these things go on, and when we just come to worship and we don't take responsibility... um, for the inner workings of the church. Now, you might think that what that means is money, and today it does, because we have two annual meetings, and the one tonight is the one about money. But I'm not embarrassed saying, yes, that's what we'll deal with tonight, but I would feel the same way about our other annual meeting, which is in the fall, which has to do with officers and leadership and ministry issues. And both of these things are essential for a church to have a ministry in a community. So um, being from Wisconsin... um, I really don't give a rip how much it's snowed or how much ice there is on 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 the on the road. Uh, come out tonight. Uh, I don't care whether you're a, a member or a friend. Come out tonight. Um, I don't care whether your husband does want to sit in front of the television. Come out tonight. Um, whatever. Come out tonight and uh, join with us in thinking through uh, the ministry of this next year. We'll have a time of prayer. Uh, a time of telling you what the vision, the spiritual visions are, telling you some of the blessings that we've had this last year as a church, what has changed that has been for the good. And uh, so I encourage you to be there tonight at uh, the potluck and then immediately. We'll, we won't go longer than an hour and a half. It's a very short congregational meeting tonight. So you'll get home in plenty of time to do whatever you are planning to do this evening, um, which I have no idea what that would be, Right. Is it, well, I won't show my ignorance by asking a question. Um, is tonight the Super Bowl? It's not. When is it? I thought it was always in January. Because we always had to plan our annual meeting around when the Super Bowl was going to be in the past. <laughs> well, all right. That shows my ignorance. Now, one other thing. This last week, Brian Bailey, who was an attorney who became a Christian... Um, actually here in morning worship services while he went to IU Law School and then clerked for an appellate judge up in Indy. He, this last week, organized uh, Sanctity of Life service. I mentioned it last Sunday. And it was held, and uh, it was an encouragement, I think, to those of you who were there. Anyhow, after the service, you'll notice on the lectern outside the center doors that there's a pile of uh, papers there. And this is the message that I gave. It's printed up. Have as many as you want. We'll keep them there in the foyer in the next few weeks. And you can take them. If you'd rather have an electronic copy, send the church office your email, and they'll be happy to send you a Microsoft Word attachment. This coming week, um, one other note, family note. Um, This coming week... I will be going up to Wheaton and on Wednesday, I think it's Wednesday, 
pretty sure it's Wednesday. Um, yes, on Wednesday, speaking in the Moody Chapel on the issue of uh, women's leadership in the church, um, Barb Hughes and I will be doing the uh, biblical position, <laughs> and Jill and Stuart Briscoe will be doing the unbiblical position. Um, and I, I don't make any bones about saying that. I think it's very true. If you had seen the questions that they had prepared for us, uh, which I'd be happy to show to you if any of you want to send me an email, I'll send you the questions as they originally came. It's very clear that uh, the whole panel was being weighted in the direction of feminism. And uh, it's interesting that just as the world is getting tired of it, the church is, is turning on to it. And of course, Bible schools are the last of the church to turn on to anything because they tend to be stodgy. And so about 20 years late, Moody Bible Institute is deciding that maybe it needs to move in the direction of uh, what I believe is feminism. Anyhow, Barb and I will be speaking there opposite Jill and Stewart, and I'd ask your prayer for that. And uh, it's, it's going to be hard being opposite a man who has a British accent. And he has a delightful sense of humor, and I'm not sure which of them is a more formidable aspect. <laughs> All right, now, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I know Pastor Carell preached on Galatians 2 before. Um, I'm going to go back through it, doing some different things, and I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is our, well, let me put it this way. This is the tenth week that I have spoken on the book of Galatians, the eleventh with David, and our first week in chapter 2, dealing with these first ten verses. Let's hear the word of God, which is eternally true. After an, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, and it's kind of interesting there, doesn't that kind of feel a little bit weird? James and Cephas and John, we're used to saying Peter and James and John. Well, it's the same three names, but it's switched, and we believe this shows the order, the precedence that these three had in the church in Jerusalem at this time. James, the brother of Jesus, and then Cephas and then John, James and Peter and John. 
Anyhow, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Now, beginning with... Chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul opens up the first major part of his letter, which is an autobiographical section containing the largest amount of information recorded anywhere concerning his life, taking up about one quarter of the book of Galatians. And the first ten chapters of chapter 2 continue that autobiography, the section that we just read. So section 1 of Galatians is the history This is after the intro. The history, Paul's autobiography, chapters 1 and 2. In section 2, chapters 3 and 4, which is extended theological treatise. And then section 3, ethics, in chapters 5 and 6. How then should we live? Verse 1 in our text. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So here in the middle of his autobiographical history, particularly related to the issue of whom Paul was or was not indebted to for his gospel doctrine, Paul in chapter 1 has explained that he had almost no contact with the apostles in Jerusalem. And he explained that he didn't go to Jerusalem until about three years after Jesus Christ called him to himself. If you'll flip back to chapter 1, you'll see this section there. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 21 say this, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, notice uh, the use of the term for him becoming a Christian, that God called him, all right? Called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So this is the context then for Paul's statement. Quote, then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly the timeline of Paul's life. We can talk about the different missionary journeys. We can talk about when we think they happened. We have tracers, markers in the texts of different books in the New Testament of where he went and when. But when it comes to getting down to the exact details, and for instance, right here, trying to figure out exactly which trip this was. Now, most Bible students believe that he's referring here Uh, In our text, when he says, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, most people think that this is the trip where he comes from Antioch, the church in Antioch, and they have the council in Jerusalem. And they have that big brouhaha over whether or not the believers are to be circumcised. It fits well with the text of Galatians. It's the same theme, the same conflict, whether you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian whether you have to be circumcised, whether we can trust in works like circumcision to have some saving effect on us. Uh, But it might not be that this is the same trip. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we do not know exactly what the schedule is, the meaning of the first verse, the first word, the word then, 
is that Paul is claiming to be giving an exact account of how many times he went up to Jerusalem. In other words, the whole theme here is, look, um, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are true pillars. Um, I know that they have spiritual authority. I am not flippant in dealing with them. But I want you to understand that I received the gospel, the doctrine of how to be saved, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. I received this directly from God. I don't mean to be rebellious. I don't mean to be disrespectful towards the home church and towards the leaders of the home church. But I have to be clear here. I did not get the doctrine of the gospel from these leaders. I, I want to be respectful towards them, but I didn't get it from them. As a matter of fact, I wasn't there very much at all. As a matter of fact, it took me three years to get there for any length of time the first time, and even then I was only with a couple of them, and I didn't hang out with all of them. And then it was, it was 14 years later. So you see, I'm not steeped in the Judaistic culture of Jerusalem and all the pressures that there are in the home church. And it's key to his argument that he show them that he has some independence from this home church and from all of the status and all of the history and all of the new-timer, old-timer, Johnny-come-lately kind of pressures that are going on through all this argument. All right? So he says, then, after an interval of 14 years, then... All right. He's being specific about when. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now, this Barnabas is the same man who encouraged Paul when he was first called by Christ. You remember that Barnabas took Paul up to Jerusalem and personally introduced him to the apostles there. Now, why did Paul need introduction? Well, the reason was that he had been going around breathing out murderous threats and curses to Christians. He was a Jewish leader who hated the new church. He was doing his best to wipe it out. And so, when you hear that Paul, the student of Gamaliel, uh, a really grand uh, muckety-muck in the Jerusalem hierarchy of the Jews, religious leaders, when you hear that he's become a Christian and he's coming back to Jerusalem, you're not just chomping at the bit to meet with him. I mean, remember, this guy is the guy that was persecuting and, and killing Christians. He held the coats of the religious leaders back when the first martyr was stoned. And so he needed um, a sponsor. You know, if you ever read anything about uh, secret societies or been in the Greek system, I suppose, I don't know, I never pledged, but maybe the Greek system does this, you have to have sponsors. And so Barnabas is sort of Paul's sponsor as he goes to the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas says, the Lord has done a real work of grace in this man's heart. He's changed. Now, now come on, Paul, I'll introduce you. And so this is, this is the character of this man, Barnabas. You remember also that Barnabas and Paul had a real falling out, a knockdown, drag out argument that caused them to divide. And they were arguing over whether a young spiritual leader named uh, John Mark should be allowed to go with them on one of their missionary journeys because he deserted them before. And so Paul, he deserted us. He's not coming with us. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Oh, come on, chill out, Paul. Everybody makes mistakes. And so Paul didn't chill out. And Barnabas didn't give up being an encourager. 
and they divided. You remember that. All right. Well, this is Barnabas. He and Paul are working together here. We find this account. As a matter of fact, we read in Acts 4.36 that Barnabas' real name was... What was his real name? Anybody know? Uh-huh. Huh? Tim? Uh-huh. All right. It's almost as good as getting Rita. His real name is, is Joseph. And the apostles named him. So this is like a term of endearment, like honey. They called him son of encouragement. And we see the character and we understand why the apostles gave him a new name. Uh, I have called some, uh, a number of years ago, I have called a few of my friends brothers for adversity. And translated into the Greek, I don't know what it would be. Maybe it would be yaka. <laughs> but anyhow, you need to understand Barnabas means something. And what it means is son of encouragement. We see this character all through um, his life. Now, who else was with them? Well, Titus was also with them. And Titus was likely a believer from the Antiochian church. He was a regular companion and co-worker with the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know that a book at the end of the New Testament is named after him. It's a book that Paul writes to this young pastor. And Titus was trusted by the Apostle Paul. We know this because he was given two real sensitive jobs uh, to deal with the Corinthian church. One of them was he was sort of a shuttle diplomat between Paul and the Corinthians when everybody at that church was calling into question Paul's authority and his leadership, his apostolic office. And we see that Titus is one of the ones that's sort of working through that issue with the Corinthians. And then the other thing that Titus was given the job of doing was uh, handling, supervising, uh, some of the collection of money from Corinth for the home church in Jerusalem, which also would be a sensitive issue. You'd need a man that you could trust, you could depend upon. And this was Titus. So Barnabas and Titus are with Paul. Um, but it's very clear, if you look at verse 1, who the leaders are, because it says, uh, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and it's not Barnabas and Paul that do this, but it's Paul alone who says about himself, taking Titus along also. Well, when you have that kind of language, it's clear that Titus is uh, a younger man who is being brought by this older man, Paul, and is in a sort of junior apprentice position. Now, it is the view of most students that this visit to Jerusalem is one and the same with the visit from Antioch recorded in Acts 15, which is, as I said, normally referred to as the Council of Jerusalem. But it's kind of confusing to know then why the Apostle Paul here says that the gospel doctrine he preached, he submitted to them, meaning the leaders of the Jerusalem church, that he submitted to them in private. Now, why would he say that he went to them and talked to them about his gospel doctrine in private? And we don't know. Um, our best guess is that it's because there was such tension over this issue that the decision was made that the first discussion of it would not happen in front of everybody so that everybody who was at fever pitch would, would yell at once. And if you can imagine that, sometimes at your, in your home, uh, maybe, or sometimes if you live with a bunch of people... Uh, together, there are times where you have felt tension growing over an issue and you'll pick somebody else off and you'll go into a private room and, and sort of come up with what, what the vibes are, who's headed in what direction, what the battle plan is. 
And probably that's what was going on here, that the Apostle Paul, knowing the tension of the issue of circumcision, of this conflict between uh, the Johnny-come-latelys, the Gentiles, and the old-timers, the Jews, and you've got circumcision at the center, you know, do, they, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? So they go private, and they begin to discuss this. But it's also clear, if this is in fact the Council of Jerusalem, the decision is not just carried out in private. It's taken in front of the church. And it's also clear that the church doesn't have just a confirmatory role in, in voting yes on the elders' recommendation, but that there is discussion that, that the church as a congregation really enters into. So he says that he... Uh, went back, that they went private. And it's also interesting to note um, what he says in verse 2. He says it was because of a revelation that he went up. Now, I want to have a little uh, side path on this, on this issue of him saying that it was because of a revelation that he went up. Um, I think that we ought to note here that it is very frequent in the stories of the Bible that the stories record for us that God reveals to individual people what they ought to do. Um, we have a tendency today to be so uncomfortable with the health, wealth, gospel, name it and claim it people that we remove the agency of God from this world. Now, I don't mean to say that we don't believe in miracles. We still pray for healing, but we're even uncomfortable doing that because in some ways, I think all of us have been corrupted with uh, the deism of the early uh, American fathers. It's sort of the absent uh, uh, and blind watchmaker, you know, that, that God has set up the order of nature and that God's agency now in the world is nature, is logic, is, is uh, the laws of physics, is, you know, God has already set that all up, and he's removed himself, his agency, his power, his voice, his direction from this world. And, and uh, I have heard, I have not read it, but I have heard C.S. Lewis uh, says in one of his books that... Um, the more mature we become as Christians, the less we expect and ask for God to give us personal and specific direction. And uh, to, maybe I'm unfairly uh, characterizing what he says, but I have certainly heard people characterize it to me as, you know, the more mature believers don't really look for God to be involved in their lives and the lives of their loved ones, except in a sort of obedient scriptural way. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? That real maturity... you 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 prune yourself off of any expectation that there is a God, He is there, and He is not silent. And, and if, you, if you say that, what you really mean is that the Bible has spoken. And what more does He need to say other than Scripture? Well, now on one hand, that of course is true. I'm not going to argue that we should come up with another text of Scripture. Uh, on the other hand, I, I also admit that it's true that I myself have been subject to people coming to me with a prophetic word. God told me to come to you and say this. And it's a very awkward position to be in, to, to have people come to you and say that God has a message. And when that message comes at a time in your life when you're at the center of the controversy of a church, which I was at the time, and it has a very specific direction that you're supposed to go, it gets even more awkward. What about a man that comes to you and says he's been praying for five years for a wife and you are that woman? 
that God revealed. And you know, this happens all the time. Now, he might not be so stupid as to say, you know, the Lord spoke to me personally and said that you personally are to be my wife, and if you don't do it, you're disobedient to him. You know, but all the implications are there. You know, you know that if you don't fall in love with him and see him as a husband, that he will think that you're not in obedience. I've got to put on my glasses. All right. Um, you know that he'll think you're not in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I have told you before, I think, the story of this prophetic word coming to me. Um, and it was such a, oh, it was such an embarrassing end. You know, this is one of those situations where you wish that you could... <laughs> Where you wish uh, you wish you had aides who would shoot you with a tranquilizer gun, um, and you could wake up when it was over. Um, so anyhow, Mary Lee and I were sitting there at this table, and this woman with her husband dutifully sitting next to her tells us that she came up with this prophetic word for me, and this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, the interesting thing was that the prophetic word, and it was all written down, and I was given a copy of it, and this was God speaking, all right? And it was very interesting that at the very beginning of it, it had a long section talking about how my father and I didn't love one another and didn't get along. And so I was released immediately, you know? I was so filled with dread about what it was going to say. And then I read that, and I thought, she's a false prophet. This is that clear. Because what she said wasn't true. You know, I remember when my dad died. I was there. And uh, let me tell you, there wasn't a problem. <laughs> okay? So immediately I could just silently listen to the rest of it. And then when she was done and she had all of her feminine, empathetic sort of desire to heal everybody and can't we all get along, you know, and she, she thought it was God speaking, but it wasn't. And it wasn't because it wasn't true. A main part of it wasn't true. And the Bible says you test a prophet by whether or not what they say is true. All right? It's just very clear. And so when she got done, I said to her, thank you very much. I know how much you love the church. I know how much you care about Mary Lee and me. I, I know this seems very right to you. But the problem is it's not from God because it's not true. And the reason it's not true is, is this. And uh, so I understand how we can be put in a situation where people claim to have a word from the Lord for us. But this is what I want to say. The invalid use of a proper thing does not invalidate the proper use. In other words, if you have a tool that, say, for instance, a drill, an electric drill, and your uh, seven-year-old son gets a hold of it and starts ramming holes in, 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 in the, uh, in, in the uh, drywall in the garage... Bam, 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 bam. You don't throw the tool out. Right? You teach your son that you're thankful that he wants to grow up using tools. This is a good male thing to do, right? <laughs> okay? But that tool is not to be used in that way. And the same thing is true when it comes to us looking for direction from the Lord. Because people use the word revelation, because they say that they have a word from the Lord or a prophetic word or a word of knowledge or whatever language they use, and because we have a high view of Scripture and don't believe that any of those prophetic words should ever violate the unique and supreme authority of the Word of God being the very revelation of God's mind to us through the agency of men, all right? 
that does not invalidate the fact that Scripture itself shows over and over again that God is pleased to give his people direction. All right? That God is pleased to guide his people. That God is sovereign and may do that the way he likes. And if I were to go around this room, or those of you that understand what I'm about to say, if I were to go around a presbytery meeting, all right, and I would ask them to describe to me how they've made decisions at key points in their life, what you would find over and over again is a very personal statement that the Lord gave them very specific directions. And if they weren't willing to admit it, then I would bring up to them St. Augustine, who at a certain point in time does this trip, right? And the Lord is pleased to give him new birth in Jesus Christ. A specific text, he opens the Bible. Everybody says, you're never supposed to do that. You know, that's irresponsible. You should have a disciplined daily devotion going through the Bible once a year or once every three months or two years or whatever and taking all of the scripture today you should, together you should be led by God. And that's true. That is true. But that does not mean that God does not satisfy your needs at a particular time, giving you what you need. Remember this. And I'm going on too long on this subject. But remember this. When you and your husband are intimate and in her womb is created a human life, this is the direct creative agency of God. The fact that you can explain it using the laws of nature in no way changes the fact that God has specifically chosen to bless you with a child. And if that child has eyes that don't see and are blind... It is, we are told by Scripture that God is the one that made that child's eyes blind. God gave you the grace of having a child that's blind so that you will grow more like him in, 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 your, in your character. And if your child dies, that's directly from God. And it's his blessing to help you grow closer to him. So, just because you can explain how thunder works doesn't mean that it isn't God's voice. <laughs> I mean, do you follow? Everything in this world is under God's control. And every, you know, philosophers love to discuss what is truly a miracle and what isn't. And there might be some value in having that discussion. But the truth is, you should trust that when the Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him study the Bible in a disciplined way, seek the counsel of the elders, talk to his wife, of course, and, and then put his fingers to the wind and see which way it's blowing. And through a variety of means, the Lord will give him direction. Now, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord. Now, if you want to argue with me and say, well, the way we ask of the Lord today is having a disciplined commitment to Scripture and getting a multitude of counselors and everything, I agree. But nevertheless, what Paul chooses to say here is not that he went around, tested the wind, got counsel from all of the leaders in the churches that he had a special relationship with, and then he got direction to go up to Jerusalem. It says what? What does it actually say? Huh? What does the text say? It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I think if you're, if you're um, inclined to say that that revelation was for the apostolic age, I'm inclined to think that you're a nitpicker. Because the godly people I have known have always talked about specific revelations God gave to them. Oh, no, now, he didn't have to say that, did he? 
Okay, no, the revelations are not superior to, on a level with, anywhere near the revelation of God's Word. But how are you going to describe to me God speaking to Rita Cuffey and telling her that before he dies, her husband Jimmy would come to faith in Jesus Christ? Now, what are you going to tell me about that, those of you that knew Rita Cuffey? You're going to tell me she was an intellectual flake? You're going to tell me that she didn't have a proper honoring of the unique and exclusive authority of God's Word? You're going to tell me that she didn't understand the theological intricacies of the closing of Revelation with the end of the apostolic age? And what if when you get done telling me that, that night, the Lord says to you, leave Bloomington and move to the West Coast. I am sending you there as a missionary. Then what are you going to do? Are you going to deny that God speaks this way today? In other words, brothers and sisters, we should believe that when God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord, and that the Lord will provide it, and bountifully, and without finding fault. And when you ask, you should not doubt, because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You should believe that God is a God who gives direction. And you should be free to use the word revelation about that. Now, it's very interesting if you go to the text of Scripture and you look at the accounts of how the Apostle Paul received direction. It's very interesting that there was a time when he was told by a prophet something. Do you remember the, do you remember the incident? Look at um, Acts 21 and you'll see what, what happens there. This is a time when he was going to go up to Jerusalem and... Uh, I think it's very interesting. I think it's the kind of extreme caution and care we should take when we do have people who claim to be coming to us with a revelation from God. Watch this, verse 10, Acts 21.10, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus, so he's a prophet and his name is Agabus, came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Pretty heavy duty, isn't it? In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So there's the revelation. All right. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, begging Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. It would seem to be the direct uh, fruit of that prophecy that, you know, if that's how he's going to be bound and he's such a good gift to the church, then the church would plead with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Now you see this. The Apostle Paul is given a prophecy. There's no question in the text that it's a true prophecy. And in fact, it does come true. But the prophecy is given in the context of the entire church begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul listened to the church. Multitude of counselors. Does he listen? No, he doesn't. He goes up. So in other words, we have still the responsibility of doing what we believe God has told us to do. Sometimes that responsibility requires us to go against the words of a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. Sometimes it causes us to go against the church who pleads with us, saying, do not go up to Jerusalem. 
it's very clear from our text today that the Apostle Paul was very careful in submitting the gospel doctrine that he preached to the leading men of the church in Jerusalem because he says, you know, um, I was not about to allow them uh, to change the doctrine. So there's this, and this is what I would say to you. I would say to you, um, your security is in always submitting to Scripture and whenever a prophecy goes in any way against Scripture, you know it's false. Whenever it goes self-evidently against reality in this world, you know it's false. Whenever it doesn't come true, you know it's false. Um, but even if you don't know through any of those means that it's false, you have an obligation to follow the direction that you know God has given you. Okay? Do you understand that? And it might mean that there will be times where you have to go against your spiritual leaders. Wives, your husbands, uh, church people, your pastor, and your elders. Now, how could I say that? Well, think about it. Can you think of examples in Scripture where proper authority is denounced by people under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Like, for instance, can you think of the religious leaders saying to the apostles that they're no longer to preach in this name, the name of Jesus Christ. And do you remember the response? We must obey God rather than church leaders because that's what they were, okay? What about the church in Nazi Germany? You realize how small the confessing church was in the midst of all of the ethnic uh, rage that consumed Germany? Okay, what about the church today when the whole world is going after glitz and, and uh, 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 lights, cameras in action? The health and wealth gospel. And it's being led by real religious leaders. You must say no to it. You cannot become addicted to a hyper uh, spirituality that's false, that requires you to go against spiritual leaders, against your own family. You have to do it. Um, so... Um, I'm not trying to say that there hasn't been a change in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit from the apostolic age to today. I do believe that there is a change. I do believe today in America there are very few people that are healed. I do believe that the voice of God speaks overwhelmingly through Scripture. I do not believe that the normative way for Christians to get directions is through dreams, is through prophetic utterances and words, uh, is through what they might call revelation. Nevertheless, I do not believe that it's right for us to come up with a system of doctrine whereby we define the word revelation as not being able to be used anymore or a word of knowledge or uh, God spoke to me. I don't believe that it's pious for Christians to refuse to use those words anymore. Um, and this is something that I know some of you have strong disagreement with me over. I, I ask the words blessing on you. But I do believe that God still does directly lead us. Um, and I also believe that when Jesus said uh, in Matthew, do you remember his, his promise? Jesus said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good 
to those who ask him. Now, I know I haven't gotten far. I'm on page 5 of 10. Um, but I think it's very important that we not... Uh, that we not trust in our intellectual abilities to compartmentalize God and think that we control Him. God will do what He will do. And I know you'd all like the seven rules of, of, of Christian guidance. <laughs> you know? Um, like Bill Gothard gives us the 20 rules of Christian child-rearing. All right? Um, but God is bigger than our, than our rules and our flow charts. And we must protect the exclusive authority of Scripture. Uh, and we must not give up discernment. But we also must not become essentially Christian deists and have all these theological justifications for why God never does anything radical today. Um, I don't think it's biblical. Remember. Remember this. All right? I'll end with this one. <laughs> Remember when God told Abraham to get up. You know where I'm headed, don't you? And to take his son, his only son, and to sacrifice that son. You remember that story. Can't you just imagine, theologically, had we heard Abraham say what he was told to do the arguments we would have come for him to disobey God. So be careful over this issue. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the exclusive authority of Scripture. But we thank you also that...